Welcome to The Road to Unistoten, a documentary produced at CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Hi, I'm Liz MacArthur. In July 2014, I got on a converted school bus with a group of activists to travel 1,200 kilometers from Victoria, B.C. to the Unistoten pipeline blockade in northern B.C. near Houston. These are the interviews and sounds of the journey. This segment uses audio from radio-bed.com. Visit their site for more interviews like this. Hi, I'm Frida Houston. come from the Hunastatan clan, Githsehu, also known as, and I'm appointed spokesperson from my chiefs and have been making decisions under directions of my chiefs and provide info to them from industry and anybody else that wants to try and access these lands. Frida is one of the people who lives at the Unistoten camp year-round. She explains that the protocol on the bridge is based on free prior and informed consent. At our bridge we have a soft blockade and we stop every person that's coming in and ask them the questions, who are you, where are you from, how long do you plan to stay if we let you in, do you work for industry or government that's destroying our lands and what kind of skills do you bring and how will your visit benefit my people? And mainly industry would have trouble with the sixth question and how how they would benefit my people. And some people have been like outright rude and refused to answer the questions that are locals. And I'm pretty sure it's got a lot to do with privilege and racism. So they right off the bat start coming in us, confronting us instead of and they refuse to answer the questions, so we just ask them to try, like, to stay calm and ask them to turn around and just go. That if you can't answer any questions, sorry, we're not going to let you in. And a lot of them think they have it's just as much right to this territory as us, just because they grew up in the area. But other than that, some people are answered the questions successfully, and we have let them in. Like a guide outfitter that works about has a cabin back here. We've actually, because they've been friendly and even share the meat with us that they get, so we allow them in because that's a benefit to us. They're giving us meat. Other people that are just wanting to go pick berries or just go for a boat ride in the lake, we allow those people in because they respectfully answer our questions and agree to tell other people what we're doing here. It's something that our people have done for time memorial, so we're just reinstating it as it's been sitting dormant for so long that we're just doing it again because our ancestors did it for thousands of years. Even in between clans, we weren't allowed to go into other clans' territories. In groups of five, we walked to the center of the bridge and stood in the heat over the Morris River in front of two people who'd been trusted to carry out the protocol, while camp leaders Frida and Togestein went into town. We were individually asked questions about why we were there and what we would offer the camp. Once we'd answered to their satisfaction, we were allowed to cross into the camp. No one was turned away. My name is Togestai, and Togestai is a name that I received back in 1998. And it's a hereditary chief name that belongs to my clan, which is the Laksamasu, or the fireweed of the Watsuta Nation. And I guess when I received that name, I was I was told that that was who I am and who I will always be 24-7, 365 days a year, all the time. And I could never behave or conduct myself 
otherwise from my previous identity that I had before I had that took that name on so I took that very seriously and I was raised culturally by my grandparents Togestai also lives full-time at the Unistoten camp. He and Frida explain the history and legal position of the blockade. We're right now, we're by Talbitskwa, which is the Morse River. And we're by our cabin that we've been living in for the last few years. And this territory belongs to my people and has belonged to them for thousands of years. And of people have used it basically for trapping, hunting, fishing. And it's actually the headwaters where the salmon spawn and... Over the last four years, we've it's been threatened from proposed pipelines, and right now I think there's three that are threatening to come through, and hence that's why we developed the camp and why we built this cabin right in their route, and have built a pit house now in route of PTP and permaculture garden as well in route of PTP because PTP is slated to go forward sooner than any other projects and even though our people have said no they're still trying to force their way in so that's why we have the soft blockade here now. Our legal position that we have here is something that is being bolstered by you know not just the, the case law that exists across the board but also the Constitution Act of 1982. You know when the Constitution Act of 1982 was developed and our people rose up at the time and said, you need to include us in the Constitution. It forced the Canadian government to change their own rules. The, the, the epicenter of the way they conduct themselves, the Constitution had to recognize Aboriginal people and their spaces. So Section 35.1 is one of those things within the Constitution that provided that for us. So when the government adopted and entered those parts of the Constitution into the Constitution, our people suddenly had a lot more legroom and freedom and rights for the first time in this, this oppressive colonial state to proudly stand before everybody and say, you know, we're still not gone, we're here, and we're not going anywhere. But that's not where it ends. That's, that's not the end-all, be-all of the entire thing. You know, I think rights and the Constitution and stuff are interesting. But there's something here that's within each and every Aboriginal person. and It's it's something that's been passed down for, you know, thousands of years in all of our nations. And that, that something is not something that is handed down by oppressors to us and given to us in a silver platter and saying, now you have permission to do this, now you have permission to do that. The oppressor is never going to give us the full, the, the full sense of the word of freedom, especially when that freedom entails them continuing to rape and pillage what belongs to us, even in their own court cases. So this, this thing that, that exists with us now that supersedes this whole idea and construct of rights is something that we recognize as responsibility. And in Wetsu amongst the Wet'suwet'en people here, we call it a Naknu'oten, the way we live on our lands. And that's 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 the that's the responsibilities that we have. It's it's not it's not rights that were handed down to us from an oppressive state. This is just the way that we live on our lands. This is how we conduct ourselves. The Creator put us here 
the creator gave us these stories to describe how we conduct ourselves and the stories and the songs that we have and the ceremonies that we have all describe in great detail how to conduct ourselves that's our constitution Frida says their main focus for starting the blockade was to reoccupy their traditional territory. Because we've been forced off of it for a long time, and whenever we're my family, we've always been cultural and came to the lands, and we go fishing, hunting, and we'd camp out, and a lot of times all of us worked, so we'd take every opportunity on the weekends, long weekends especially, and then by the time the fourth day came, we'd all look at each other and say, oh, we got to go back to the routine that we didn't want to go back to. We'd rather stay here, but we had to go back. And last year I spent the whole year out here. And then I went back to work last October and I only worked like three, four months then got into a bad accident. So I've been off work since and I've been finding that I've, nothing's pulling me back that way. I want to stay here. I love it here and I've been very healthy since I've been back here because I, I suffered with severe allergies and all other these other different ailments. But after I've been living out here, I used to wear glasses and I no longer wear glasses. My eyesight improved and the optometrist couldn't believe that I got my eyesight back. He asked, are you sure you didn't have uh, diabetes or anything like that? And I said, no, my family doesn't have diabetes. I've never had diabetes. So I just got my eyesight back and my allergies have been minimized. I used to have to pop uh, allergy meds every day. And I haven't had to take any allergy meds since I've been out here. So we talk about sort of the land as being medicine. Yes, yeah, so the land is medicine. And from when I got in that car accident in January, I was going to physio, chiropractor, and I felt like I was spending a lot of money, but I wasn't getting results. So I said, I should just go back out to the land. And me just hiking and being connected is going to make me better. And I already feel better. And I couldn't make a fist. Going to physio and being out here, I was forced to use this hand at... My daughter's home where I was living, everything's automated. You just flick the switch, you just turn on the tap. Here you have to work for everything you have to grab. And I thought if I come out here, then I'm going to be forced to do everything and get my muscle tone back in my hand. Mm -hmm. And it has been helping. I wasn't ever able to make a grip, so it's getting there, and that's due to the land. And that's why I feel a lot of our... My people are sick because of this lifestyle we're living now is not our lifestyle. And our hopes is to run education camps to try and call them reconnection camps to reconnect our people back to the land is our ultimate goal. And my niece that was here with the newest Unisat and baby, she's going to graduate next year because she's just got six more months to finish her internship and she's going to be a psychologist and her dream is to build a lodge out here a healing lodge and work with the youth and that's one of our bigger goals for this area and we want to run camps like I said and bring our young people out here bring our young families out here teach them the things that we know because because of residential school that a lot of the substance abuse and drug abuse has left a lot of them uneducated within our culture and we're hoping to start running culture camps right now 
our tribal office runs culture camps, but they rely on government funds. And we're saying we don't need government funds to run our camps. We want to try and raise our funds here and not charge our people and bring them here and just have the funds to feed them and and maybe run economic development initiatives. We said ecotourism and maybe raise the funds that way so that way we can feed the people that we bring out to train. And we need a little bit funds to sustain ourselves too because we can't fully self-sustain ourselves out here. And as you saw with the camp, everything did not come off our land. We had to go to the grocery store to buy a lot of that food because there's only so much we could pull out of the garden right now because mm-hmm. everything won't be ready until fall. So During one of the workshops, Togestai talked about people getting the wrong impression about the atmosphere at the camp, something Frida commented on as well. One person tells 10 people and then those 10 people tell another 10 people. Then you got 100 people that got that wrong message. And we invited some people in here before and then we word came back to us that they were going around telling the teaching staff and other people in my home community that this is like a really violent and unsafe place to go, that they wouldn't send their kids here and things like that, and made it sound like it was a really unsafe, that we were real militant. And so after that went around, it seems like it's hard for us to undo what those, even though those people aren't really reputable to, for people just to take their word for it, never even came to ask us. And I tried confronting the teaching staff that were teaching our youth the I Count program that was supposed to come out here. And they said that uh, nobody said that to them, but actually one of the staff that was working within that program came and told me why they weren't reluctant to come out here because the person that was out here before told them this about our camp and it's not even true so we'd like to tell people to come and check it out here themselves because you can't go like everywhere even all those tabloids even with the movie stars all of those are never half of them are not even true so it's the same thing you can't believe everything to be truth if you're questioning something you should go check it out yourself and not just go by somebody else's opinion and come and see how wonderful it is here and hear from other people that have been here that it's not a militant place and a violent place to come it's where everybody shows love to one another and solidarity because we all have and we're all in the same frame about protecting our waters protecting the trees protecting everything here so that the future generations not just the indigenous people everybody in this world is going to suffer if we as a people don't come together and start doing something different stop doing things and stop promoting industry in the name of jobs at the destruction of the earth so that it can kill our children and kill your children the camp does pose difficulties for the people who stay year-round. We're right now, we're by Talbitskwa, which is the Morse River. And we're by our cabin that we've been living in for the last few years. And this territory belongs to my people. It has belonged to them for thousands of years. And of people have used it basically for trapping, hunting, fishing. And it's actually the headwaters where the salmon spawn and... Over the last four years, we've it's been threatened from proposed pipelines, and right now I think there's three that are threatening to come through, and 
Hence, that's why we developed the camp and why we built this cabin right in their route and have built a pit house now in root of PTP and permaculture garden as well in root of PTP because PTP is slated to go forward sooner than any other projects. And even though our people have said no, they're still trying to force their way in. So that's why we have the soft blockade here now. In addition to the new bunkhouse and the permaculture garden, at the work camp in May, a traditional pit house was also constructed. Well, I spent 17 or so days excavating with shovel and I worked every day, all day long, alongside some people that only worked two or three days, then went back to permaculture and then came back. And then sometimes we'd switch over and help permaculture dig out some roots and rocks they were having trouble with. So then we took out massive boulders out of there and it was physically hard work. But at the end of it, I felt like really never felt like I was young again because I was, felt so strong from all that physical work and To me, if you're physically active, as well as eating healthy, you're going to live a longer and healthier lifestyle. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to help too much in the last spring camp because of the car accident. So I'm still recovering. Can't do too much with my injured back. And still, even now, it's still hard for me to do stuff because I can't bend over. So it sucks. But... I've still managed and probably didn't even look like I've been in an accident with nope. all what I just, just I just around all so the time. much drive to make sure everything goes and everything's coordinated and our guests are well taken care of. And so, yeah, that's just the way our people are. When we have guests, we ensure that they have a comfortable stay and that they're safe and that they will have something good to say when they leave and sharing our messaging with everybody so that they in turn can share with 10 people, 10 people, then 100 people will, turns into thousands of people will hear about what it is and how we are here, that we're not a bad group of people, that we're human like everybody else and just want our lifestyle back, that which has been taken away for a long time when we're forced onto reservations. I call reservations prison because every one of us have band numbers and prisoners have numbers. All of us are given numbers and we were confined to a small piece of land, yet we own 22,000 square kilometers and all of us are put into tiny tracts of land and they extract all these resources and make billions of dollars and they throw crumbs at our bands to operate on and it's not even enough to operate on and then, and then now they want to monitor every penny they spend. Now they don't even make pennies, so... So, yeah, that's, to me, the government, Canada, owes our First Nation people way more than what they loaned them for the treaty process. They keep saying our tribal office owes them this treaty money, and I say, bullshit, we don't owe you nothing. You owe us, because you've taken so much off our lands already and destroyed so much. And if you put a valid monetary value on that, you owe us. We don't owe you a cent, and it's time for us to take back control of over our lands and resources because they've mismanaged it for how long they've overexploited resources till there was no more and they're still doing it now they're trying to do that to oil and gas it's at the tail end of it and they're trying to overexploit that till it's gone then what are they going to use and they're trying to overexploit our water you can't bring that back every human being in this whole world needs water and if we destroy every piece of water here we're all going to die. Mother Earth will survive, but we'll die. So people need to think about that. 
what can you do to make that change? You can't keep going the same way and saying jobs, jobs, jobs. You can't eat money is what our people say. And you got to think about seven generations ahead. And if you're not thinking about the seven generations ahead, then us as a humankind are going to be no more. So people need to wake up and start paying attention to what's going on around them. Global warming is created by all these polluting industries, like the oil tar sands and the fracking fields are destroying all the waters and making emissions into the air and changing our environment. And because of that, we have the pine beetle problem because it's too warm here. If we had our freezing winters, it would have killed the pine beetle in one winter. But because our winters are so warm here now, it's gone out of control and they're having to overlog to try and control all the dead trees. Otherwise, it could be dangerous wildfires if they don't control it. The camp is intrinsically linked to a cultural and political resurgence happening. If we're to look at it from a cultural perspective and a personal perspective, I think it's really important for people to really seriously consider coming back to the lands in their homes because their ancestors are waiting for us here. You know, it doesn't matter which part of this earth that we come from, if you're indigenous, you have a home place. Your ancestors have always been there. They've always been there. There's a place that they've, they've They've done their ceremonies in, they've done their prayers, they've gathered medicines, they've nurtured babies till adulthood, trained them to be amazing leaders, left behind incredible stories about the, the, the times that they spent on this earth. And these places are sacred. All of these places, no, there's no site-specific sacred spot. This whole earth is sacred. We can't sit here and kind of think that, okay, well, we have a sacred ceremony spot over there so that we'll protect that spot. This whole earth is sacred to all indigenous peoples. And for indigenous peoples to come home and spend time on, on their traditional lands, eating their traditional foods, doing their traditional ceremonies, praying, raising their children in those environments, nurturing them till adulthood and to become amazing leaders themselves, that's something that feeds the spirit, feeds the human spirit. As indigenous people, it's not just it's not just a fun exercise, it's not just a, something that's symbolic to who we are. It's essential to us as as spiritual beings. It's our responsibility. That that was a that that was the cultural and the human side of it. Um, there's a legal side to it as well. Uh, we have the Delgamo court case that was won in our territories here. And that was won back in 1997 when our people went to the Supreme Court of Canada and challenged the Canadian government on this whole issue of land title. And at the end of the day, when the, the judges ruled in the Supreme Court of Canada, they said that we have rights to conduct ourselves in our cultural way uninterrupted on our lands. But we also have rights to what happens on our lands. And in order for us to assert those rights, we had to go through negotiations, meaningful negotiations with government and corporations or whoever it was that wanted to do any business on our land. So that was kind of the kind of the the beginning stages of the treaty process. 
when a treaty process got really like really heavy all over Indian country and that was that was that was the government's response to that decision they decided well we'll just tie them up in a treaty process over the years we'll keep them busy we'll pay a few people salaries so that they think that you know this is a career for them this is a job that they'll always have we'll make them go in debt buy all these toys go into debt by buying homes by buying expensive cars and we'll make them dependent on it but it's just going to be a small amount of people that are going to actually benefit from this this elite group of indigenous people that will benefit from the treaty process while we're raping and pillaging and doing business as usual everywhere else. And our people woke up to that. We realized that, damn it, we have to get out here and do something here because we're losing all of our lands to logging. We're losing it all to mining, like horrible mining accidents. One of the worst mining accidents occurred here in Wet'suwet'en territory at a place called Goosley Lake. And the mine was um, equity, the Equity Silver Mine Project. There's a huge spill in 1984 that dumped Im- immense amounts of acid rock drainage into the Goose Lake and wiped off, wiped, wiped out an entire salmon run. And this this whole idea of keeping us busy, keeping us living on reservations, so elitists begin to benefit from these few little bits of table crumbs that are dropped into our communities, is something that kind of woke all of us up. We realized that we have to do something more. So we came out and lived on the land. But during this time period, just recently, you know, a court case went through the Supreme Court of Canada again. And I think they call it the Williams case or the Tilkotin case, which entrenched the ruling that was that occurred in 1997 and elaborated more on it. And one of the main components of that, that the court ruling emphasized the fact that if there's if there's previous occupation on the land by the indigenous peoples, that they have the ability to protect their 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 spaces that they're occupying and living in, and that was hugely beneficial to us. So we we really want to make sure that indigenous people from all over realize that this opportunity exists. Is a genuine and real opportunity that exists here for, for us to reoccupy our lands in ways that our ancestors will recognize and train our children to grow up in that same environment. You know, this, this earth is falling apart. The, the you know, humanity in this so-called thing called civilization is, is destroying a planet that our ancestors have, have learned to live in harmony with for thousands and thousands of years. And just the recent exploits of greed and selfishness is destroying it. And we don't have the choice anymore. We need to go and occupy our lands. Frida and Togastai want to help others create similar camps. We were actually discussing that about running camps on teaching other people how to do the same thing that we're doing because we'd happily share this knowledge because we think it's so important for people to learn these skills and because it was always a part of them. And when you bring things back that once were a part of you, your spirit comes back to life. And if their spirit comes back to life, then they'll be able to do more and have more strength to move forward and be proud of who they are and get back to your lands 
I keep saying everybody has to get back to your lands because ancestors are here. I can feel them here and just being on the ground compared to pavement and outside like that's dead. Once you put pavement over, you kill the life underneath it. So everything is alive out here. And you have living water that you drink, has got full minerals in it. And we eat our wild meat out here that's taken through ceremony and respect. We respect the animals that, because a lot of times the animal offers itself to you before you take it, and then you take it in respect. So, And there are plans in the work for next steps at the Unistotin camp. Um, next steps, we're talking about running some indigenous camps for the locals, like I said, and figuring out ways that we can do it without charging them any funds. And now that we got our bus going, people that don't have transportation, we can actually go and pick them out up and bring them here and maybe run start out with running three-day camps so it's not too overwhelming for them and get them give them a taste of what it is to be out here and hopefully encourage them to come out and show them our pit house and everything else uh, try and encourage that lifestyle so that other clans can do the same Thanks for listening to The Road to Unistoten. This documentary was made possible with support from CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Music comes from Tanya Tagak and Running Point. To find out more about the camp, visit unistotencamp.com. To find out more about CFUV, visit cfuv.uvic.ca. In the segment, you heard audio from radio-bed.com. Visit their site for more interviews like this.